Session 8, the title of this session is called Understanding the Times. And in this session, we're going to discuss really a broad range of things that are relevant with regard to Islam and the events taking place in the Middle East. But the goal of this session is that we, as we study biblical prophecy, is that as we look out into the Islamic world and understand the theology and the doctrines of Islam, what's taking place in the Islamic world, that according to 1 Chronicles 12.32, that we would be like the sons of Issachar, that we would become men and women who understand the times, but who also, as a result, have a knowledge of what we should do, how we should apply, and how we should respond to the understanding of those things that the Lord is revealing uh, to his church in these days. We're going to discuss, really, a, a series of merging trends and current events that are taking place uh, in Israel, in the Middle East, and draw out some very important lessons from some of these things that are taking place, and also discuss how we, as missionaries and evangelists to the Islamic world, are to respond and how we are to relate to Muslims based on the commandments that the Lord has spoken to his people in the past and continues to speak to us clearly uh, throughout the, the New Testament scriptures. So the first sign that we want to discuss and we're going to look at is Israel and the Mideastern Peace Treaty. And we're going to discuss really some of the foundational texts that apply to this issue. So after the Hebrews left Egypt and they approached the Promised Land, God gave them a set of instructions and laws, that was the Torah, that they were to abide by. And one of the specific warnings and commands that God gave to the Hebrews was that they were never to make treaties with the various nations or peoples that lived in and around what would become the land of Israel. This is a clear commandment that the Lord made. He reiterated it multiple times. He said, you shall not enter into peace treaties with the peoples that surround uh, the land of Israel. So Exodus 34, verse 12 through 17. Be careful. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Do not worship any other god. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. It's, it's important that we take note of the fact that the Lord says here, do not enter into treaties with them. If you do, it will be a snare to you. It will be a snare to you. Now, sometimes we read these little expressions in the Bible and we really don't stop and take into consideration what it's saying. There are expressions such as, the fear of man is a stumbling block unto my feet, which means it will trip you up, it will cause you to stumble. But when the Bible says it will be a snare unto you, uh, as a child, uh, we used to trap, we used to sometimes trap muskrats, and we use snares or we use these, um, these traps. The point is when someone sets a snare, the purpose is because they want to kill you. A snare is not a mere stumbling block. It is something that is intended to kill you. It will result in the end of your physical life. Later, this command was reiterated. The Lord took this command very seriously. In fact, it is a consistent and repeated theme throughout uh, the Torah and the Old Testament. Even after the Jews had defeated the various tribes that lived in the land, they were still not allowed to make treaties with the surrounding peoples. They were to remain separate from them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 2 through 4, 
And when Yahweh your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And Yahweh's anger will burn against you and he will quickly destroy you. The lesson that is being expressed here is essential and we must understand that. He is commanding the Hebrew peoples, do not intermingle, do not mix, do not mix with them, do not enter into religious alliances or political alliances or treaties, do not marry with them, do not enter into covenant with them. The Lord is a God of covenant and he takes covenants very, very seriously. Biblically, the very concept of holiness was an issue that entailed exclusivity and separation. And yet the modern mind cannot comprehend this and it cannot tolerate this because exclusivity is anathema to the spirit of the age, to the hyper-tolerant idol of the age, which says, you know, that always all various religions lead to God, religious pluralism, and so on and so forth. And so when the Christian is bound and determined to be exclusive and say, there is no way unto the Father other than through the Son. No one comes to the Father other than by me. I am the way and the truth and the life, so on and so forth. Then they are going to be castigated. They are going to be marginalized and attacked and called all sorts of names. But yet the Bible is very clear. There is only one way to the Father. And it is this universalism that is very much infecting the church. Uh, recent polls have shown that those that are born again in the American church nearly 40% held to universalist beliefs. In other words, the idea that various religious beliefs can lead you to salvation apart from uh, and, and uh, regardless of what your relationship to Christ is. And this powerful spirit of the age, this religious pluralism, this hyper-tolerance, this universalism is powerfully infecting even those of us that consider ourselves to be conservative. And we need to be aware of it, identify it, and stand against it. Because Jesus himself was very uh, exclusive, and the Lord himself commanded his people to be very exclusive, because he had a purpose. He had a purpose. It was through the Jewish people that the Lord had a very unique purpose and calling in his un unfolding plan of redemption for the world and for all of his creation it was through this very specific people that he would he would redeem all of creation his primary concern was that the surrounding peoples will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods the lord's plan was this he looked down he saw abraham and he called them out he called abraham out he made abraham into a family and then out of that family he turned them into a nation the, the Jewish nation, the Israel. And then through that nation, he would create in them a holy people, a holy womb whereby he could bring forth the Messiah, the Redeemer into the earth. And through the Redeemer, he would redeem and heal and restore all of creation. This was a plan that could not be thwarted and it could not be infected. It could not be uh, infected by the idolatry and the perversion and the paganism of the surrounding peoples. And the Lord took this issue very seriously. It was through the Messiah, not only the Jewish people, but also the entire world would come to know Yahweh. The peoples who lived in the land worshipped gods that were essentially demons. You had 
the surrounding peoples at the time, they were sacrificing their children, burning them in fire to the gods Molech. They would engage in orgies in order to try to, uh, to instigate the gods to give them abundant crops and all sorts of perversion and paganism and bloodshed. These were things that the Lord did not want his holy people to become infected with. They would be a cancer among them. The Lord took this very seriously. Now, as we try to relate these things to modern times, the objection is always raised. People will say, but Joel, the peoples of the region, the Muslims today, they don't sacrifice their children to gods. They're not sacrificing their children to Molech, right? I would argue that, in fact, they are. And for anybody that pays attention to the uh, indoctrination in, in the region, the Palestinian territories, as they're dressing up their little children to be terrorists and training them at a young age, at a very young age, to hate the Jewish people with a demonic hatred. You can watch these little uh, sort of imitation Mickey Mouse uh, programs and they're indoctrinating their children. Oh, you know, Naboo, you know, we hate the Jews. They are pigs and dogs, shed their blood. And these little four-year-olds are watching these things. This is the Sesame Street. This is the the romper room of the Palestinian territories. They are filling them from a very young age with hatred and then using them in their early teens as suicide bombers and preparing them to sacrifice their own lives in order that they could kill Jews. I want to introduce you to this woman named uh, Um Nidal. It's simply, she is the mother of Nidal. Nidal was a young man who uh, killed himself in the process of killing a bunch of Jews. He was a successful homicide or suicide bomber. And I want to read to you the statement that the mother of Nidal made on the day that her son was killing himself. And tell me if this is not clearly one of the most demonic things that you've ever seen. As we analyze and look at what is the fruit of those that submit to the God of the Quran. She says this, By Allah, Today is the best day of my life. I feel that our Lord is pleased with me because I am offering my son for him. I wish to sacrifice more sons for Allah's forgiveness. It's true that there's nothing more precious than children, but for the sake of Allah, what is precious becomes cheap. This is the fruit of worshiping the false god of Allah. This is the fruit of worshiping the false gods of the surrounding peoples. This is what the Lord does not want the people of Israel or the church to become infected with. He does not want us to intermingle with this. He does not want us to compromise with this one bit. This is the fruit of Islam. And we could cite a million other such examples. Did the Jewish people obey God's commands on this issue? No. And even more sadly, Israel's historical failure will be repeated. And I want to emphasize the fact that the church throughout history has also failed to live up to these principles. We are witnessing this today in various ways in terms of Israel's historical failure that will be repeated in the last days. According to the prophets Isaiah and Daniel, just prior to the return of the Messiah, Israel will once again enter, enter into a covenant with the surrounding peoples against Yahweh's command. Speaking of the future covenant that the leaders of the Jewish people would make with the surrounding nation, nations, Isaiah refers to it as the covenant with death. Isaiah 28. 
So Isaiah was in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was warning Judah not to make the same mistake that the northern kingdom of Israel had made. They were concerned about the invasion of the Assyrians, and as a result, they entered into an alliance, a military security alliance, with some of the surrounding peoples, the Aramites that lived up in modern-day Syria, and some of the other peoples. And Isaiah was warning the southern kingdom of Judah, do not do it. And this is one of the most consistent cries of Isaiah throughout his book. Isaiah 28, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave we have made an agreement. So speaking of the last days, Isaiah was prophesying, those leaders of Israel in the last days will enter into a covenant, an alliance, a treaty with the surrounding peoples in direct uh, contradiction to the commandments of God. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, in other words, when the military sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie, our refuge, and falsehood, our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is the Lord's remedy. This is the Lord's alternative. He says, you're trusting in these false treaties. This is what I'm telling you. Listen, I lay a stone in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. The Lord says, do not trust in religious alliances. Trust in the precious cornerstone. Trust in the Messiah. Trust in me. This is the commandment of God down throughout biblical history, resonating to his people. Do not enter into alliances with the pagan peoples, with the peoples that are worshiping God's other than the one true God of the Bible. Sign number two is the last day's temple. The prophet Daniel elaborated even more specifically, detailing the nature and the timing of the future treaty and how it will be broken. A central theme of the treaty is a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And so Daniel 9.27, it says, The Antichrist will confirm a covenant, again a treaty, with many for one seven-year period. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So part of this, this end-time treaty, this covenant, will be a rebuilt temple. There will be a functioning temple in Jerusalem. And the Antichrist then sets up an abomination that causes desolation in that temple. In the last days, the Antichrist will be the mediator of this covenant or this peace treaty with Israel, and it will specifically be a seven-year period. However, in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist will violate the terms of this treaty and set up what the Bible calls the abomination that causes desolation. It will cause the temple to be desolate. There will no longer be the sacrifice taking place in the temple that will be reinstituted, and the Antichrist will actually set himself up in the temple of God, a place that is reserved only for the God of the Bible. Seven years after this covenant is made, Jesus returns. He saves the remnant of the Jewish people from the assault of the Antichrist and his armies. Speaking of this day, Isaiah now speaks on a positive note. So now the Messiah has returned, and Isaiah says this, In that day, the remnant of Israel, and the Lord always speaks of the remnant, the survivors, the residue of my people, those that are left, the survivors of the house of Jacob, 
will no longer rely on him that struck them down, but will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, will rely on the Lord. So the Jewish people will come to actually rely on the Antichrist. He will be an individual that they will trust to mediate this peace treaty, this security uh, agreement. They will come to rely on him. But after the time that the Messiah returns, the people of Israel, they will no longer rely on the one that struck them down. Rather, they will rely on the God of the Bible. They will rely on the Lord, Yahweh. And then it says, a remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. All in all, the messages and lessons of these passages are clear. By trusting in the protection and the security that alliances would provide, instead of trusting in Yahweh's protection, the Jewish people were making a covenant with death. By making treaties with nations and peoples who are quite simply committed to their destruction, the Jewish people were deceiving themselves with a a fanciful notion that they would somehow escape the murderous plans of the surrounding peoples. This was foolish, but they're actually, they will believe that by making covenants with the peoples that are committed to destroying them, that they'll be protecting themselves. It's insanity. This embrace of feel-good agreements will result in Israel's near destruction. The message that Isaiah trumpeted to his people was that there is only one man that they could truly trust, and that is the Messiah. Now these warnings, they have historical fulfillments, but they also have ultimate end-time fulfillment as well. So historically, the nations that surround Israel were Syria, uh, Aram, Damascus, Egypt, Moab, etc. Today, these are all Islamic nations. Now, we want to discuss briefly the Islamic uh, episode in Islamic history called uh, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now this is essential. If we are to... If anyone wishes to even have really just a basic understanding of the underlying principles involved in Middle Eastern politics, then one must first understand the history and the implications of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So, Muhammad burst forth out of uh, uh, Arabia. He, was, he began in Mecca. And then he was, as he, his fledgling cult began, the, uh, the Qureshis, the tribe that he had come from, they didn't like him, you know, quickly they got tired of him. And he was kicked out of Mecca, and then he was sort of in exile in Medina. And while in Medina, Muhammad prophesied to his men, to the young, fledgling uh, Muslim uh, group, and he said, we're going to make Hajj. We're going to make pilgrimage to Mecca. We're going to put on the robes of the pilgrims and we're going to go and, uh, and go worship Allah at the Kaaba. But what happened is that as they were going, they were, they were uh, interrupted by the Qureshis. And at the spring of Hudaybiyah, <clears throat> the, 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 the Qureshis stopped Muhammad and his men and they said, whoa, 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 where do you think you're going? You're not going to make Hajj. And there was this conflict. And they actually abused Muhammad and made fun of him in front of his men. And they made fun of him in front of his men. But then they they came to this agreement. And they made what came to be called the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And the treaty was this. It was very, very lopsided in the Qureshi's favor. Without getting into all of the details of it, they said, for the next ten years, we have a peace treaty. We have a peace treaty. And of course, the Qureshis were the largest, most powerful tribe of the region at that time. They said, we're in a peace treaty, and from now on, if any of your people want to leave, leave the Muslim community and join the Qureshis, you have to let them do so. 
However, if any of our people want to convert and become a Muslim, you have to send them back. It was completely lopsided in the Qureshi's favor. But what happened was Muhammad accepted this. He accepted it and he left. And they said, no, you're not going to make Hajj. Well, of course, Muhammad's men were very upset with him. They said, wait a minute, you just promised us and prophesied that we were going to make Hajj. And then Muhammad, like a typical false prophet, this is what he says, and this is recorded in, uh, in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Hadith. He, G, Muhammad says this. He says, yes, but did I tell you that we would visit the Kaaba this year? You know, like the typical false prophet, Muhammad missed the bullseye, and then he walks over and paints a new bullseye around the arrow. Oh, oh yeah, I said we would make Hajj, but I didn't say this year. And so the Qureshis actually agreed. They said, you can make the Hajj, you can make the pilgrimage, you can do it next year. And his men were very, very upset. So after hearing all of the grumbling among his, among his followers, Muhammad awoke the following morning claiming that Allah had sent down a new revelation, explaining that what had happened the day before, instead of being a, a great embarrassment, it was a great victory for the Muslims. And here is the revelation that Muhammad had. He said, from now on, from now on, whenever someone joins us in uh, attacking villages or attacking caravans, they get a very significant percentage of the plunder. And so at this time, the Muslim men were roughly about 1,200 men. It was still very small. Within two years, once this sort of decree went forth, that if you join us in battles, you get to keep your share of the plunder, the wealth, the booty, the, uh, the sex slaves or the, the slaves and so forth. Within two years, the Muslim community exploded to become 10,000 strong. They became desert pirates. They became pirates of the desert. It was now a cult, and it was a pirate cult. No longer were the Muslims the weaker between the two parties, between the Qureshis and the Muslims. Now, Muhammad had the upper hand. And so, Muhammad looked for a, a reason to break the treaty, and he returned to Mecca, and in what is historically... Uh, referred to as a very peaceful conquering of Mecca, Muhammad took Mecca. He had 10,000 men. He broke the treaty. He violated his agreement. He went back on his word. But because he was now the most powerful in the region, he didn't have to keep his word. Now the Muslim movement was virtually unstoppable. The point in recalling all of this is to demonstrate the fact that Muhammad was a brazen opportunist. But remember, he is also the supreme example for all Muslims to follow today. He is considered to be the perfect example. Anything that he said or did is to be emulated and to be copied. He is the model that Muslims today look to with regard to how they relate to non-Muslims in the area. So as such, Muslims do not view peace treaties in the same way that most people understand a treaty. Rather, according to Islamic theology, Muslims don't understand treaties as binding agreements rather as opportunities to grow stronger or to buy time or to look peaceful. For the purpose is never, the purpose is never to simply make peace with the infidels. Muslims today clearly understand Hudaybiyah to be a code word, which in brief means kiss the hand of your enemy until you have the opportunity to cut it off. And the joke is that in the Muslim world, treaty is spelled R-E-L-O-A-D. Reload. So Hudabiyah as a modern Muslim political tool, in May of 1994, Yasser Arafat addressed a group of Muslims in Johannesburg, South Africa. 
He had just uh, entered into a, a very significant peace treaty with Israel, and the Israeli left were just ecstatic. And then here in South Africa, speaking in Arabic, he didn't know that he was being secretly recorded. And so coming out of this meeting in Arabic, here is what he said. Referring to the peace agreement that he had only recently made with Israel, Arafat was recorded as saying this. I see this agreement as being no more than the agreement signed between our prophet Muhammad and the Quraysh in Mecca. The prophet had been right to insist on the agreement for it helped him defeat the Quraysh and take over their city of Mecca. In a similar spirit, we now accept the peace agreement, but only in order to continue on the road to Jerusalem. You see, Yasser Arafat entered into a peace treaty with Israel, but it was never for the purpose of entering into peace with them. It was for the purpose of eventually defeating them and conquering them. This is the pattern that was picked up according to the pattern of Muhammad and today is carried out throughout the Islamic world. This has deep relevance with regard to the fact that the Antichrist will be an individual that makes a peace treaty with Israel and then breaks it. We need to pay attention to these things. Islamic theology lines up with biblical eschatology like hand in glove. Side number three, I want to look at the rise of Turkey. Turkey has, uh, we've discussed this in, um, in previous sessions, Turkey has arisen in recent years. The government has been taken over uh, by the Islamists. We discussed a lot of the ways that Turkey has taken over. We didn't mention the fact that, and this is really always the final straw, uh, they, they gain all of the various um, components of government and all of the various factions and seats of government, but they've also taken over significant percentages and portions of the Turkish media. And in fact, today, and again, this is early 2011, there are more journalists imprisoned in the nation of Turkey than in any other nation in the world, even more than Iran or China. Turkey is putting in prison those, those journalists that are oppositional to the Islamist party. And Turkey is arising. And there has been this call going out from Turkey for a Turkish-led empire. There's, there is a revived nationalism, a revived neo-Ottomanism that is spreading uh, throughout the Middle East. This is a comment by George Friedman. He's the CEO and founder of Stratfor. This is the world's leading private intelligence and forecasting company in his book, The Next 100 Years. He says, Turkey will soon reemerge in its old role as the dominant force in the region. The Islamic world is incapable of uniting voluntarily. However, it is capable of being dominated by a Muslim power. Throughout history, Turkey has been the Muslim power most often able to create an empire out of the Islamic world. So now we're going to take the principles, the biblical principles, the warnings that we've already looked at, and we want to relate them to some issues that are taking place in the earth today. And these are just random issues that I've had the ability to be part of and, and uh, have been acquainted with just to draw out some lessons. I want to introduce you to God's Holy Mountain Project. And as you can see, this is a painting that was featured on the God's Holy Mountain Project website. And what you have in this painting is you have the Jewish temple rebuilt on the Temple Mount with this, this beautiful rainbow flowing over to the Dome of the Rock. And flowing into the Temple Mount from the eastern gate 
are Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and they're all just gathering together and singing and worshiping and mingling and coexistent there on the Temple Mount. Jews and Muslims and Christians all worshiping together, all intermingling, worshiping the one same God. This is um, a comment made by Yoav Frankel. I've had the chance to chat with Yoav. He's an Orthodox Jew from Israel, very nice guy with very good intentions. However, he's not paying attention to many of the warnings and the passages that we've looked at in the Torah. And this is what Yoav Frankel says. God's holy mountain project envisions the day when the Jewish temple will exist side by side with the Dome of the Rock. This vision of religious shrines and peaceful proximity can transform the Temple Mount from a place of contention to its original sacred role as a place of worship shared by Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Do you see how this universalism is working its way even among the religious Jews of Israel? That you have this call that Jews, Muslims, and Christians would all worship, quote, the one true God together. I want to uh, introduce you to a man. I've had the chance to, uh, to sit down with him and, and meet with him. His pseudonym is Harun Yahya. His real name is Adnan Akhtar. He is uh, essentially a cult leader from Turkey, a Muslim cult leader. He is uh, a very nice man, but he is uh, very messianic in his orientation. He's also the most published author in the entire Islamic world. He has more materials out there, more books. He's written over 200 books, most likely written by a team of uh, people that he has working for him. He has vast pools of wealth and resources, very difficult to figure out where he gets all of this wealth. But he has a very powerful media empire, and he is very influential throughout the Middle East. And he's written extensively on Islamic eschatology. He's written several books on the return of Jesus. He's written a book called Jesus Did Not Die. Jesus Will Return, The Signs of Jesus' Second Coming, The Glad Tidings of the Messiah. He's written books on the coming of the Mahdi. He wrote a book called The End Times and the Mahdi, Portents and Features of the Mahdi's Coming. Uh, He just wrote and released a book called Jesus and the Mehdi Will Return This Century. It's a 1,200-page hardcover book. It's a massive volume. He wrote a book called Signs of the Last Days. He is very interested in the subject of Islamic eschatology and the coming of the Mehdi, and he has affirmed the fact that both Jesus and the Mehdi will will be coming back very soon. He's also been very vocal in calling for what he calls the Turkish Islamic Union. This is something that is again coming out of Turkey. It's a form of Neo-Ottomanism. You can look at the map, uh, his vision as he's articulated it. Recently with the Gaza flotilla incident, after that incident, uh, I saw in various nations, including France, uh, protesters that were holding up this sign, this map of the Turkish Islamic Union, and emblazoned across the map, it said, the Turkish Islamic Union is the solution. This is being heralded as the solution, as that which will bring peace to the Middle East. Harun Yahya, this is a statement he made specifically with regard to the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. He has been openly calling for the Jewish temple, as a Muslim leader, he's been calling for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt. And he said this, Of course, by Allah's leave, we aspire for this. We want it. 
This is surely one of the first things we will accomplish once the Turkish Islamic Union is established to rebuild the Prophet Solomon's masjid or the mosque, the Temple of Solomon. Now, this is uh, some time ago. There was a contingency from what is called the, uh, the Israeli Sanhedrin. There is sort of this nascent Sanhedrin, a body of 70-plus Orthodox Jewish rabbis that are attempting to reform this ancient judicial body of Jewish Orthodox rabbis known as the Sanhedrin. We read about the Sanhedrin, of course, in the New Testament. And there was a contingency of representatives from the Sanhedrin that went up and met with Mr. Oktar. And on their website, the Sanhedrin.org, you can look this up, they released a statement together, Mr. Oktar with these Jewish rabbis. And I want you to listen very carefully to the statement that was made. They said, out of, out of a sense of collective responsibility for world peace and for all humanity, we have found it timely to call to the world and exclaim that there is a way out for all peoples. It is etched in a call to all humanity. We are all the sons of one father. Really? Where, I mean, I would agree with this, uh, you know, we're all in that we're humans. But where is the God of, of uh, Islam ever referred to as a father? We are all the descendants of Adam. And all humanity is but a single family. Peace among nations will be achieved through the building of the house of God, where all peoples will serve, as foreseen by King Solomon in his prayers. In other words, where Jews, Muslims, and Christians, they want to see the temple rebuilt, where Jews, Muslims, and Christians can all worship the one same God together. He says, come, let us love and respect one another. Let us love and honor and hold our heavenly Father in awe. Let us establish a house of prayer in his name in order to worship and serve him together. Together. What is the commandment to these men? Do not intermingle with them. Do not enter into religious alliances with them. Do not enter into treaties with them. And here you have this statement made by one of the emerging most significant Jewish Orthodox bodies in Israel. And they release a joint statement, a joint declaration with a prominent Muslim leader saying, come, let us worship and serve the one true God together for the sake of his great compassion. Together, each according to his own ability, he's calling on the peoples of the earth to rebuild the temple. Then you have this other uh, rabbi, this very in- interesting guy, Rabbi Menachem Froman. He's the founder of the Gush Emunim uh, community there, the settlement community in Israel. Again, a very influential rabbi. He went up and he met with uh, Mr. Uh, Oktar. And after meeting with him, there was this uh, very significant statement that was made in the Turkish newspapers. And I've translated the statements that he made in the newspapers. And this is what he said. He said, "...is an irrefutable fact that Turkey is the most natural mediator between Israel and the Palestinian society." So here is a very influential, conservative, orthodox Jewish rabbi saying, the only nation, it is an irrefutable fact that the only nation that is capable of bringing about peace between Israel and the Palestinians is a Muslim nation. Again, a nation which is radically turning to radicalism. And he says, it is Prime Minister Erdogan and uh, President Abdullah Gul. These are the only two who can bring regional peace about. There is a lack of trust, and it is the Turkish government and Prime Minister Erdogan that will bring that trust about. And he says, Jerusalem can become the center of peace between the greater Muslim world 
and the Western world. He says, the religious leaders of Israel and the Muslim world can declare Jerusalem to be the capital city of peace. And then he says this, when Jerusalem transforms from the capital city of peace for Israelis and Palestinians, she will become the capital of world peace. Turkey, listen to this, Turkey can continue to reveal itself as a model of Muslim peacemaker in the Middle East by leading a meeting between the religious leaders aimed at establishing Jerusalem as the capital of world peace. Modern day Turkey can renew the Ottoman Empire of old. Here you have a Jewish man calling for the reestablishment of the Islamic Ottoman Empire, the reestablishment of the caliphate. And he says, not through, not through military conquest, but rather through the Turkish peace initiative for the Middle East. This would result in many nations dwelling peacefully in the Middle East, surrounding the holy city of Jerusalem. So here you have, again, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi saying that it is through the rebuilding, the, re, the reunification of the Islamic world that world peace will be established and Jerusalem will become the capital city of world peace. And I've talked to these guys. I've been in relationship with uh, these rabbis from the Sanhedrin and they mean well. And they've essentially expressed the fact that they would rather live under a Muslim religious, a moderate Muslim religious empire than a secular Israeli government. And the same thing with Menachem Froman. This is deeply disturbing. And I've spoken to them and I've said, listen, you guys are supposed to be telling me this. In the Torah, the Lord commands you, do not enter into alliances with the surrounding peoples. But they say, no, these Muslims worship the one true God. It's you Christians that adhere to Trinitarianism that is, in fact, that which we cannot mingle with. They have, they have, they have accepted the bait. The trap has been set, and they have swallowed the bait. Here is a statement that was made by Rabbi Yehuda Glick. He is one of the chief rabbis with the Temple Institute. This is the group in Jerusalem that has been putting together and recreating the various artifacts for the temple, re remaking all of the utensils and so forth, so that when the time comes, they would be ready for sacrifices to continue to take place. Uh, if there was ever the, the word went forth to rebuild the temple, they would be ready to do so. After meeting with Mr. Oktar, this is what Rabbi Yehuda Glick said. He said, Jerusalem is becoming a city which will become the capital of God in the world. I want to say that I've come to Turkey for a few days by the invitation of Mr. Oktar. I really see how he and his foundation are great lovers of Israel and the Jewish people. I want the Jewish people, the community of Turkey, to recognize that Mr. Oktar is a close friend, a true spiritual lover of Israel. He is the biggest, most, most faithfulest man in the world. Christians and Muslims, some people think that if a place is holy to all religions, it's a dangerous place. And we are coming to say that the truth is the opposite. He says the Temple Mount, which is the holiest place in the world where God began his creation, should be the center of religious tolerance. And as Mr. Oktar had said, and I agree with him, it should be a place of freedom of prayer, freedom of worship for all religions. And our goal should be the study of the heritage of the temple so that it would be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he says this, and the Temple Institute of course, is trying to prepare the actual building of the house of prayer. But the concept of what I am trying to do and the purpose of my meeting with Mr. Oktar and the foundation, the beautiful foundation, the beautiful people that are running the foundation is trying to do together 
is to unite together. What this religious Jewish Orthodox rabbi that is working at rebuilding and recreating the temple utensils is to get together with this Muslim in order to unite together. Because our goal is to announce to the world that God is one. And then he literally begins to recite from the Quran. And he recites the very Quranic verses that say that God has no son. Rabbi Yehuda Glick. Mr. Akhtar also has met with representatives from the Mehdi Institute, the Iranian representatives from the Bright Future Institute. They're certainly not great lovers of Israel. Uh, again, as I mentioned, I had the opportunity to meet with Mr. Akhtar in uh, 2009. We sat down together, and he immediately began by saying, you know, I'm so grateful that you've come here and that you believe that Christians and Muslims need to work together to fight against unbelievers. And I said, Mr. Akhtar, I'm afraid that there's been a, a terrible misunderstanding. I don't believe that at all. It was very awkward. And I said, listen, I appreciate you inviting me. I'm very thankful for the invitation. And I looked at him in the eye and I said, Mr. Akhtar, the reason that I've come to Istanbul is because I want to invite you to become a follower of Jesus. I want to invite you to become a follower of the Jesus of the Bible, not the false Jesus of the Quran. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Akhtar, you are greatly deceived. And I pointed to, he had several of his guys in the room, and I said, you are deceiving all of your people. And I said, if you will accept this invitation, then your life will in all likelihood be very difficult. But you will have a place in the kingdom. In the kingdom you will have a place. However, if you reject this offer, your place will be in the hellfire. And my hands were shaken, but I said it. And he, he laughed it off and he said, oh, it's so good. It's so good to finally meet a real Christian. And I choked up. I immediately choked up. I thought of all of the different people that this guy has met with. No one has ever just confronted him and challenged him and invited him to become a Christian. Now, in this session, we discussed a lot of things. We discussed some of these principles. The commandment of God not to intermingle with the surrounding peoples, not to intermingle with that which is unholy. And we pointed mostly to the Jewish people, what they are doing. However, the, the final, at the end of this, I want to highlight, I want to go back to something that I discussed briefly in the last session. And that is what I call this trend within the community of those that are reaching out to Muslims, what I call the hyper-contextualization movement. And so this is a movement which... It's really a spectrum, and it involves a lot of different things. You have the, the camel method, which is essentially using the Quran to try to initially begin with the Quran to lead Muslims eventually to the Bible, but by beginning with the Quran. So we're encouraged through the camel method to begin with a demonic book to try to lead Muslims to truth, eventually leading them to the Bible, which is good. At least we're trying to get them to the Bible. But there are other movements such as the Jesus in the Quran seminar, which is wildly popular throughout the United States. There is the Common Ground movement. Then you have the insider movement, that which you'll hear these things. Uh, missionaries will say such things as, you know, I would never call myself a Christian. No, I would never call myself a Christian because to the Muslim, Christian simply is something that stirs up images of uh, immoral Westerners, Britney Spears, or 
It stirs up images of televangelists or crusaders. They say, no, that's how they would understand Christians. Therefore, I tell them that I am a follower of Isa al-Masih, which is the name that the Quran uses for Jesus. Of course, the Jesus of the Quran is a false Jesus. And then they'll go on to say things like, oh, in fact, I, I'm a Muslim. And they'll say, because the Muslim believes that uh, to the Muslim, what that means is simply one who is submitted to God, which is nonsense, because the Quran says that a Muslim is one who is submitted to Allah and to Muhammad, who adheres to the doctrines of Islam. It is not just someone who is merely submitted to God. And so there is this trend, this powerful sweeping trend within the community of those that are reaching out to Muslims, which is very much following, falling into the very same trap that these rabbis are falling into, which is by focusing only exclusively on the, the issues that we have in common, not acknowledging those things which are fundamentally contradictory. And by focusing on those things only, <clears throat> I believe that much of the community, much of the missionary community reaching out to the Islamic world is in great danger of, of falling into the snare that the Lord warned us of. And at the end result of this, the slippery slope, we have the growing movement called Chrislam. We have, uh, we have houses of worship in Nigeria and in various places in China and even in subtle ways here in the West where you have these, these individuals preaching from both the Quran and the Bible. It's neither Christianity nor Islam. It is heretical. It is complete apostasy. And yet this method is that which is being promoted by mainstream, conservative, evangelical, Protestant, Christian missionary movements. No, we need to pay attention to the warnings of the Bible. And in the New Testament it says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has the temple of God with the temple of idols? No, come out from them, stand apart from them, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you. Do not touch the unclean thing. Do not intermingle. That commandments, those commandments that were made in the Torah are consistent right up through the New Testament. These are things that we are to avoid. So again, I'm calling on those that are moving in the direction of desiring to become missionaries or evangelists or that already are, saying, I'm asking, I'm pleading with you to stand in that hard place. Stand in that hard place of saying, I will not compromise one bit. Yes, of course, there is room for uh, accommodating various cultural uh, principles and so forth. But when you start accommodating Islamic culture, when you start accommodating Quranic uh, culture, that's absolutely crossing the line and violating the clear commands of the Bible. We need to be individuals that stand in the difficult place of speaking the truth in love recognizing that the spirit of the age is in every way pushing us, that universalist spirit, that, that one God. We just all worship the same God. Muslims and Christians and Jews all worship the same God. Let's all just build a house of God and worship Him together. That universalist spirit, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. That is not the spirit of the Bible. Maintain the difficult place of exclusivity. Proclaim the gospel in love. It's difficult, it's difficult, but Jesus, he said, listen, if you are ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you when, when you stand before my Father. 
We can't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. We need to be fully, firmly convinced of the reality of that and hold firm to it even unto death. Amen.